kid. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Jerome, Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay, awesome. Well, welcome. Um, so yes, this is what we're calling intellectual formation, and it's a good pilot night. And we're starting uh, with sacred scripture. Now, I've got a ton of stuff here, and um, we'll figure it all out. It's going to be great. Now, why are we starting with scripture? Well, first, it's timely because our Holy Father, Pope Francis, has declared... This upcoming Sunday to be the Sunday of the Word of God, the first ever Sunday of the Word of God, uh, which in Latin is Dei Verbum, which is the conciliar document on divine revelation from the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Also, scripture is described by, I think it was St. Augustine, it's uh, cited in Vatican II, uh, that scripture is the soul of theology. And so if we want to, or maybe that was Leo XIII, (coughs) one of the two. Anyway, scripture is the soul of theology. So if we want to study more about um, God, and we want to learn more about Almighty God and God's divine attributes and the Trinity and about morality and all of that, all of it is brought to life by Scripture. And that if we, if we understand Scripture, Scripture enlivens all of our theology. And so it's very timely to begin with an introduction to sacred Scripture. Also, it's something I could throw together pretty quickly because we decided to do this yesterday. So uh, let's see how that goes. Starting with a quote from St. Jerome... Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. Um, that St. Jerome, the great patron of um, the Scriptures, who translated the Gospels, uh, or the whole Bible, from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. Uh, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. If we don't know the Scriptures, uh, we don't know Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. And we're going to talk about what that sort of looks like. Now, to understand what Scripture... Oh, yes, this is not going to erase... We're going to have so much fun with this. Wow. Yeah. That's bad. Oh, ignorance of Scripture is still ignorance of Christ. Anyway, to talk a little bit about um, what Scripture is in the first place, we have to start with the fact that, just central to everything, God exists, right? So um, we're going to talk about the existence of God and all that, but like, there is a God, this God exists, this God is good, uh, and one of the properties of goodness is that it's diffusive of itself. Um, God gives himself freely to us. And part of that is making himself known to us. And this fact is called revelation. That in what revelation is, is God making himself known to us. Um, and that he, he, so it's not like, Okay, well, if you can find God, then congratulations, good for you. But God is like, hey, I exist, right? It's, we can know philosophically about the existence of a God, but God reaches out to us and says, I exist, and communicates um, who he is. Uh, and that we have um, two kind of forms of revelation. The two forms of revelation takes are scripture and tradition. However, we have to realize that these two, Scripture and tradition, are one revelation. Um, Scripture and tradition are just, they're the one revelation of Almighty God. And so we can't get into the fact that, like, well, this is in Scripture, but this is in tradition, but then this other thing's in Scripture, and this other thing is in tradition. All of Revelation is God revealing Himself, and it's both in Scripture and in tradition. So there's nothing in tradition that's not in Scripture. And there's uh, nothing in scripture that has not been handed on faithfully in the tradition of the church. It's one revelation in two different um, forms, if you will. Scripture and tradition. The other important thing to know is that God's revelation is primarily God revealing who he is, not just historical facts. Right? We could take the Bible sometimes, and this is not the good way to take the Bible, but we could take the Bible... As just like, this is a history book. And so the revelation in here is about the historical facts. Like, that's not the primary purpose of revelation. The primary purpose of revelation is God telling us who, hey, Jojo, come on in. And that's recorded. 
Jojo just walked in, and he is joining us now. Um, so, let the record show that in um, five minutes and ten seconds into this, John Joseph Delaney joined us. So, welcome. Hi. Good to have you. Hi. Here, take um, paper and a pen so you can take notes. Okay, anyway, Revelation is not just uh, the revealing of historical facts or data. Like, if I could just get all the names in the Bible right, I have mastered Revelation. Revelation is God teaching us primarily who he is and unveiling his plan for salvation to us. So we have, um, this happens through... The revealed scriptures, and this happens as the scriptures are handed on and continually um, preserved and interpreted in the church. Now, let's talk a little bit about what that means. Um, God revealing himself. So, like, I'm talking right now, and I'm talking to you. Like, you are my intended audience, and the recording for whoever's going to listen at some point in the future. But you are my intended audience. I'm speaking to you. Si tutti voi saranno italiani, posso fare tutto questo in italiano. Io ho studiato praticamente la rivelazione in italiano. Posso spiegare tutto per gli italiani, ma voi non capite. When you speak, when you, when you talk to people, you talk in a way that they can understand, right? I can do this whole thing in Italian with a little bit of practice. But you wouldn't understand it, most of you, probably. Um... When you communicate something, you're communicating for an intended party. And that the revelation of Almighty God is intended with a recipient. And that recipient is not just amorphous anyone. The recipient of revelation is the church. So the God reveals himself to the church, namely first in Israel, the prefigurement of the church, and then in the new Israel, the fullness of of the church in the mystical body of Christ. So the intended target of God revealing himself is revel is the church. Meaning, scripture always needs to be read within the context of the church. It's the book of the church, and you can't read it separate from the ecclesial life of the church. And the tradition is the um, teaching authority of the church as it's a living voice in the magisterium, the, the teaching authority of the church. So... God reveals himself um, in the way that is intended for the recipient. We have this at the um, end of John's gospel. Jesus says, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the apostles, and remind you of all that I have taught you. Right? So the Holy Spirit guiding the interpretation of scripture through uh, the apostolic church. Um, and so the church is the proper recipient of scripture. Great, and of tradition, God's revelation. So we have the fact of revelation um, in scripture and in tradition. So scripture is written down. Literally, it's the script, it's the writings, right? It's the scriptura. It's, it's, the, write, it's the written down um, revelation of Almighty God. And we have uh, the tradition, the lived um, reality of Israel and the church and their current governing authorities, um, particularly the magisterium. Okay. Great. Uh, that's part one. Now, when we talk about the author of sacred scripture, it's important that who is the primary author of scripture? God, right? So God is revealing himself. So who's the primary author of scripture? Almighty God. Um, but the human authors of scripture are real authors, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are real authors of the gospel. But who is the primary author of scripture? Almighty God, because it's God revealing himself. And it's through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're getting to inspiration in a few minutes, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the human authors who are real authors are communicating as well the revelation of God. Cool. Revelation. Next. Uh, a little bit about interpretation of scripture. Now we have two words here, and I'm sure of the spelling on one of them, and I'm not sure of the other. So exegesis is um, to read and understand and pull out of scripture what God is revealing there. That's called exegesis. So to do an exegesis of a passage of scripture um, is to take scripture 
Um, and to read it, to study it, to look at commentaries, to read how it's been interpreted by the church, and to try to understand the meaning. Uh, and then you have eisegesis. I'm guessing here on spelling. I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S, which is wrong. This is what we shouldn't do. Eisegesis is to um, put my meaning into Scripture, right? And you have people that do this all the time. Exegesis comes from X. It means to get the meaning out of the text. To eisegete is to put my own, I'm going to use the Bible to put my own interpretation into it. Um, so we're always interested in exegesis. We're interested in pulling out what is actually um, intended. And we're going to get in a few minutes into the meanings. But um, where we want to pull out what is the actual What's actually being said here? Like, not, what do, how do I want to apply this to, like, look, I want to open up a used car dealership and let me just pull a section from Scripture because that's what that means. Like, no, that would be me reading my own thing into it. Rather, how, what is this passage? What does it actually say in the original language? What, how has it been received in the church? How has it shaped our doctrine? That is uh, exegesis. Now, uh, when, it talk, when we talk about different forms of criticism of Scripture, now don't take this in a bad way, but we have different forms of criticism. Criticism. Um, so the most particular one that people would know and what's kind of dominated Scripture studies for the last um, 60 or more years is the historical critical method. Historical critical method. And what we get with the historical critical method is that it's an attempt to read scripture um, as a form of history and to be more interested in how did a particular passage come to be, what um, it all started with this divide, a divide between the Jesus of history, of history, Verse the Christ of faith. So when we talk about particularly the New Testament and the Gospels, that there was a historical man named Jesus who lived. Uh, he was from Nazareth. He was a carpenter or a worker of some kind. It could have been a stonemason, judging by just the vocabulary. Who um, preached, who his disciples thought was God, who picked a fight with the local religious leaders, who got crucified, uh, suffered capital punishment and died. Jesus of history. Something historically happened. Now, we have external evidence, like we have testimony by non-Christian historians from roughly the contemporary time of um, Jesus kind of saying this happened, right? Like this was a historical event that happened, and these are not Christians. The Jesus of history. But it's um, contrasted to the Christ of faith. So that's the resurrection. That's the miracles. That's the parables. That's like, oh, well, there's, there was this man and then his followers kind of took this thing and ran with it and made him God, right? And we, we claimed that he was God. Um, you see this a lot. Like, this comes back all the time, that we just have to get to the historical Jesus. If we could just find... The historical Jesus, right? There was a book that came out probably six years ago now called Zealot. And it was like the number one New York, New York Times bestseller. I bought it. I read part of it. And it was just this again. Like it was this like in a brand new like, oh, look, we found the historical Jesus who was really just a zealot, right? Like, no, this, is, this was um, brought about in the age of rationalism where it's like it's just there's pure history and then there's that religious sentiment feeling. And now we gotta find the pure history. Historical critical method, in its bad form, tries to do that. The historical critical method tries to separate out what is actually historical and what was a later edition by Christians. The problem is it takes as a premise, oftentimes, because clearly this couldn't have happened. Like clearly, this guy couldn't have been doing miracles. Clearly, it, it assumes that this didn't actually happen. And it doesn't take as like, the Gospels are historically reliable. In fact, we have more, this is a great book here. 
This is Sarah's copy of it. But this book, The Case for Jesus, is so good. We have more reliable manuscripts from within a generation of the death of Jesus Christ um, that point to what we claim being true. Like, this was handwritten stuff um, from that close of a time and circulated in different ways. This is not like a couple hundred years later the church decided, let's just make some of this stuff up. The case for Jesus is so good because it goes through and shows, like, our historical evidence for what we claim is pretty rock solid from just the fact that we can trust what the Gospels tell us. And then the Gospels tell us a very consistent story of the person of Jesus. So the historical critical method, unfortunately, in its bad form, takes um, this divide, that the Jews of history can't be the Christ of faith. Now, in a good way, historical study of Scripture is good, right? Like, to be able to say... We have manuscripts of, like, the letters of St. Paul that date from, like, 60 years after Paul wrote them, whereas, like, our nearest work of Plato is, like, what, 800 years or something? Like, it's, it's crazy. Like, we claim, oh, Plato wrote the Republic. We have, like, one manuscript from 800 years or something later. That's not a legit fact, but that's my best recollection of it. Um, but, like, for the Gospels, like, we have pretty intact multiple concurring um, papyri that tell us exactly, like they're all saying the same thing. Um, to study historically, to know the historical details of how something came to be, and to know the history of um, what a passage is saying. Uh, the literal sense of scripture is the most important one. I'm gonna get to the different senses in a few minutes. But the literal one is what we're interested in. And to know some of the historical details, like today, we were talking from our first reading, that um, to know that like when we read, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself, um, that he was pooping. And that that's what our reading was today. It was about the pooping of King Saul, right? And actually, you could read in one of these commentaries that like they're actually putting it in there maybe to make fun of him. Like the author is very possibly including the detail of what Saul is doing in this cave, so that just to kind of poke fun at King Saul, uh, the author of the, the first book of Samuel. So it's like, it's an in, we can understand the passage a little bit better if we understand some of the nuances of what's being said in the literal sense. So historical isn't all bad. It's just, um, if it's used with the premise of we have to prove that like that this isn't true and let's try to dig all the way down and find the holes in it then it becomes bad um so the other historical criticism now you can have as well um what's called form criticism form criticism um when you were writing in uh, ancient times, you didn't have italics, underlines. You didn't even really have many capital letters. You didn't have ways of putting different things out. So things would be structured in such a way as to show like what's going on. Like you may have a chiastic structure where you have A, B, C, B, A. And just in reading it, when you see similarities here and here, here and here, it's meant to emphasize this point. Before you had italics and underlining and bolding, things like this would happen to show uh, some of the breakdown of what's going on and to emphasize certain points. So this could be a cool way to read scripture uh, with some of this literary form criticism to look for the different structure. Uh, the problem is we don't always know, like, did the author intend? You can, you can find a chiasm in anything, right? Um, we can't agree on how to break up the Gospel of Matthew, although the five different discourses seems to be the most reasonable thing. Um, but when you find similarities in Scripture of when different words are used, um, here's the thing with form criticism. You need to be reading it in the original language to be able to do it. Right? Because you don't know if the translator is translating similar words with the same word. And so for form criticism, you really need to know what original language is. Um, you need to be looking at the text itself. Here, let's pass this around. This is the Greek New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. 
right? All of it. All the books of the New Testament were written in Greek. And so this is the Greek New Testament. If you've never seen it, like, this is it. This is what, when they were writing, when St. John wrote, in Arche, Hain, Ho, Logos, right? Like, that's what he would have written down when he wrote, in the beginning was the word. So pass this around. What's also cool in here is it has, in the footnotes, the different manuscripts where we find these things. Um, so that's also really cool to look at some of the manuscript evidence. So form criticism, you need to be using the original language. And then we have, um, hey, Kevin, come on in. Have a seat next to Narayan. Everyone, Kevin just came in at minute, where are we? Minute 20. Um, Kevin's here, welcome. Kevin, have a piece of paper and pen. And you are just in time for our next form of criticism, which is Redaction Geschichte. Oh, I love it. That's the German, Redaction Geschichte. Um, is Redaction Criticism. It's similar to historical criticism, um, but Redaction tries to do exactly what it says. It wants to go through and find how were different passages edited. Right? So if you have like, here's this is what was originally said, and then someone added this, and then someone took this out, and then they added this. So it tries to find, it tries to go through and um, research all the different forms of the way that scripture has been redacted. Because many of the books, particularly the Old Testament, didn't just like, it wasn't like, let's sit down and just write this out once. It came in different sections. So in particular, you have, um, like, there are two different authors of the different accounts of creation, right? They're, they're, they're written from different um, styles. Now, you could say Moses wrote the whole Pentateuch and he's just writing different styles, if you want to say that. I'm cool with that. Um, but, like, evidence would show that there's, there's things coming from different traditions and you could all get, like, you have the Yahwist tradition and the... Um, the priestly tradition, there's a, there's other, well, there's four of them that I should have memorized. But anyway, the point is you have different traditions that you're getting, um, how did these get put together and when did they get put together and who decided that this section goes here and this section goes here and who took out this part or added that part. Um, so redaction uh, criticism. Again, this is not interested so much in the literal sense and so this is where we get into a problem is that with historical and with redaction, studying the Bible becomes studying the history of a text, but never like, what does it actually say? And with form criticism, it's what does it say, but it's more like a literary study, like, oh, let's look at the poetry here. But again, what does it say? Um, so we need to um, be interested in what does the Bible actually say? And this is where we want to get into what are called the senses of Scripture, right? When we actually study Scripture, we are interested in what does it, like the text, because we receive it with the authority of the church and at, on the church's authority as the revelation of God, we don't have to be like, hey, like at what point, what year did Paul write this letter? And what year did he write this letter? And did he really write this one or that? Like, look, it's in the Bible. The church has said, like, God told us this. Whether it was Paul or whether it was someone writing on behalf of Paul, whether Paul was speaking it and someone else wrote it, which is actually uh, in one of the ends of Paul's letters, it's like Paul is giving his salutations, and then it's like, and so-and-so, the author of this letter, who would have been the person that would have been writing as Paul was speaking. Same with, like, Mark's gospel. We believe Mark wrote it, but it's probably what Peter is telling him to write. That's why uh, Mark is usually tied in more with St. Peter. As Peter was preaching the gospel, Mark was writing down what Peter was saying. We can get back to that at time at the end. Okay, so we're interested in the senses of Scripture. Now, the most important sense of Scripture... Let's break it down into two, and then the second one has more. So we have the literal, and we have the spiritual. Okay, so the literal sense. What is actually being communicated? Again, um, 
Saul went into this cave to relieve himself. Like, Saul was pooping. Like, that's what he was doing in the first reading today, right? Literally, what does the text say is happening? Um, and what does the author um, intend? Now, that's, remember, both authors. First, what does the Holy Spirit intend to have revealed here? And secondly, like, how is this word being used? by the person who know who is the real human author because the human authors are using all of their knowledge and skill. Like Mark has some bad grammar. It's just not really nice. Whereas Paul is like using Greek to try to get across a theological point. Like reading Paul in Greek is a mess because he's so good at it. But like Paul is able to write in a way that's different than Mark. The human authors are really using all of their human talent and skill, but they are... Um, but the Holy Spirit is the primary one inspiring them. So we're interested in the literal sense. So that's where we have to look at the language, what's actually being said. And this is where knowing and doing a little study of um, Greek, like learning. If you want to read the New Testament well, learn a little bit of Greek. You can learn with like 110 words. You can read 80% of the New Testament. Like 80% of that New Testament is just 110 words used in different ways. So, um, so we have, you know, learning a little bit of Greek. Also, you know, because scripture is scripture received in the church, it is very helpful to go and look at the Vulgate, which is the translation of St. Jerome. Like, how was this received when St. Jerome was translating it? Because again, Jerome may have had access to manuscripts that we don't have. So he may have a better ability to say, we're going to use this Latin word instead of that Latin word because of either manuscript tradition or because of um, the way that the church understands it. So to you know, read the Vulgate is to read, I have that in my office next door, I think, or maybe next door in the rectory, um, is to see like this is a saint of the church translating and in you know every translation though is an interpretation okay so really looking at the language that's used um and then knowing the history what historically happened right jesus went up the mountain and he called those whom he desired and he appointed them apostles and the name of the 12 apostles are peter Andrew, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Judas, who would betray him. Right? Like, those are the 12 apostles. It historically happened one day at a certain time. Um, so we have the history uh, and the language. When we're trying to get the literal sense, um, also, part of this is genre. Right? We need to understand a little bit about genre. What are they trying to tell us in what way? We can't just think of the Bible as like one history book from start to finish, right? There's like the Psalms are different than the book of Exodus. Even Deuteronomy and number of the whole Pentateuch, is, it's, it differs uh, within itself. And so we need to, some of these things are historical, some, like our Lord tells parables, right? So when Jesus says there was a man who had two sons and the younger son said, Father, give me the share of the inheritance that should fall to me. Like, does that mean that that actually happened? Like Jesus isn't meaning to tell a historical story. He's telling a parable. He's, there is genre in scripture. And so we need to read scripture with this eye toward genre, that they're meaning to communicate different things. This is where you have like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They agree. Synoptic means like one eye. They see with one eye. They're telling one story. Whereas John is telling things differently, right? John's gospel is meant to be more of a personal encounter with Christ and not the historical recounting of the facts. Okay, so literal. We need to get language, history, and genre. Spiritual. There are uh, pretty much three spiritual senses of scripture. There's the allegorical, there's the moral, and there's the anagogical. Okay, meaning that because God is the primary author of Scripture, God can use historical events and be sure that the author writes certain things down in a certain way in order to do these three things. So first, allegory, where one thing 
symbolizes another. Take the example for this is the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea, right? They're crossing through the waters of the Red Sea. Did it historically literally happen? Yes. But with that historical event, God here is symbolizing and foreshadowing baptism, right? So the Red Sea is always seen as an allegory for baptism. Now be very careful. It literally did happen, and it has an allegorical reality. Don't get into the point of saying, well, that's just meant to be a symbol of of freedom, right? Like, no, no, no. It literally happened, but the literal historical event also has an allegorical meaning, okay? So we have allegory. Another spiritual sense of scripture is the moral sense. Meaning when you read the Bible, you should learn how to act, particularly the New Testament, right? There are certain things that's like, do this, don't do this, right? On, I think, Monday's daily mass reading, David is going to see Bathsheba taking a bath on her roof, and the two of them are going to hook up, and it's going to go really bad. Um, That's not good, right? When we read that, it's meant to be the moral sense of like, don't do this, right? This is not good. Learn how to act by seeing the virtues, but also the failures of the characters in Scripture. Did it historically happen that David and Bathsheba had an affair? Yes. But it's meant to also morally teach us what not to do. Um, And then you have the anagogical, which is pointing toward the end of time, right? So that Scripture will ultimately be fulfilled. And so here you have, like, Israel symbolizes the church... Um, And the new Jerusalem, which will be present in heaven for all of eternity. So like one thing pointing toward another thing. And so we have, yeah, Jerusalem, like in the Psalms. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, like all the Psalms longing for Jerusalem um, are also the souls longing for heaven. And the world and the church longing for the kingdom of heaven. Okay, moral, uh, the spiritual senses, allegorical, moral, and pedagogical. Here's the... Uh, thing. There, um, sometimes people want to point to the spiritual to kind of explain away the literal. Uh, and this happens, for example, in the violent passages of the Old Testament, where you want to say like, yeah, um, you know, yes. Oh, didn't Saul put the ban on the Amalekites? Saul put the ban on the Amalekites. Well, God put the ban on the Amalekites, and, and Saul was supposed pieces. to mow them all down, and he didn't, and then he was blamed. Um, and then he fell out of favor. Now, here's the thing. In this historical society, like, it was, there was blitzkrieging genocide. That was happening, right? And this was a, a reality of a post-original sin world unredeemed by the blood of Christ. Um, the problem is certain people want to say, like, oh, well, that's in there just because it's an allegory for the fight against sin. Like, no, no, it literally happened. Right? This actually literally happened. And it, while we don't say this is good, um, that there's genocide occurring, it's the reality of like, look, Joshua going on his blitzkrieg and genocide through the promised land to overtake it is like, we live in a sinful world. And you see like sin progressing, but also being counteracted by God. Like after their fall, there's like humanity trying to sin more. And God is trying to bring them back. And ultimately, it's not until the you know, fullness of revelation in Christ that we have, yeah, we probably shouldn't be genociding people. Um, but it's not, um, you can't just point to like, well, that's allegory. Like, no, it's literal. It's not ideal, but it's the reality of uh, the time and place. Okay, good. Next, um, when we have these senses of scripture, how do we even know what's in Scripture? How are we on time? Okay, we are... Oh, good, we got like 10 minutes. Um, how do we even know what's in Scripture? We have what's called the canon of Scripture. Canon. I'm going to guess one N, but maybe two. It's one. It's one N, great! canon of scripture, right? Um, The canon of scripture is the measure, like what books are part of the Bible and what books are not. And this is um, something that because scripture is received in the church is traditionally 
Um, the church sets the canon of scripture. That's what we've done. When you have the Jewish scriptures, you had uh, disputes even of like what, what should be in the Old Testament. Um, and how do we know uh, what's in the Old Testament? You had the Hebrew scriptures and you had some that were only written in Greek and that were included in what's called the Septuagint that you'll oftentimes see as LXX, which is Roman numerals for 70, uh, the Septuagint. Um, but the canon of scripture. It's what, when you go to a Catholic Bible, there are certain books in this Bible. Now, this was set out in the um, Council of Florence, the Council of, um, Council of Florence and the Council of Trent uh, both set it out. Also, the Council of uh, the Synod of Rome, which is not an ecumenical council, um, really set out like this is canonical scripture. Um, so we have it from three different sources. This is a cool book. Denzinger um, is a good summary of all kind of official teachings of the church, magisterial teachings of the church. Okay, so canon of scripture. What is in our Bible? Um, and in our Bible, we have an Old Testament um, that's broken into three sections. It is the, the Torah, uh, which is the Pentateuch. It's the first five. Uh, then it's the Prophets. And then it's wisdom. Um, here we can go to Grant Petrie and John Bergsma wrote a great book called A Catholic Introduction to the Bible, um, the Old Testament. And they go through the whole thing of how do we establish the canon, um, where does it come from. Uh, it's actually, it's really cool. So I definitely think, um, yeah. The Torah, the prophets, and then uh, the writings. Now, wisdom, the writings. Um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church also has it. Did I bring my catechism? Yes. Here you go. Um, so if you want to know what's supposed to be in the Bible, it's got the 46 books of the Old Testament. Um, and then the 27 of the new. Uh, now, here's something that's important to know. We have things that are, so there's the, the proto-canon. So there's the things that nobody disputes are canonical, particularly when we're talking about the Old Testament, right? Everyone says these are uh, canonical scriptures. But then what we have, what's called the deuterocanonical. Deuterocanonical. And these are the books that people, you won't find them in a Protestant Bible, actually. They are not um, the, um, it was it the Synod of Alexandria or something, it was, there was something that said like, no, these are um, early on in the church, before the Council of Nicaea, before Synod of Rome or all that, uh, said something, but there, you have Deuterocanonical that a lot of people don't, uh, the Protestants primarily don't accept, and there's some Jewish uh, scholars that don't accept them. These are the ones that are primarily only in Greek, and the, there's a good uh, mnemonic device. Why should Judith buy a taco and two mushrooms? Why should Judith buy a taco and two mushrooms? Wisdom, Sirach, Judith, Baruch, Tobit, one and two Maccabees. And then there are also parts of the book of Daniel and um, parts of one other thing in there. But anyway. Primarily, Wisdom, Sarah, Judith, Baruch, Tobit, 1 and 2 Maccabees. So if you want to know if you have a Catholic Bible, if you're not sure, go see if it's the Book of Wisdom. Like, that's at least, at least you'll know if you have a complete Bible, if it has the Book of Wisdom or the 1 and 2 Maccabees. If it doesn't have those, it's incomplete. It's not the full canon of Scripture. Are you checking your Bible? No, I'm, like, I'm wondering if the Dewey Rams, I think it's Ecclesiasticus. Yeah. There's a different Oh, yeah, so Sirach, um, yeah, so there's some different names for the different books. But this is the easiest way to know. Why should Judith buy a taco and two mushrooms? Um, good. Uh, so that's the deuterocanonical um, Old Testament. New Testament is a lot easier to establish. Um, the New Testament, we have 27 books of the New Testament, books or letters. So we have the three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then we have John's Gospel. 
Now, I really put it that way, John's Gospel. Because the Synoptic Gospels, like I said, are telling basically the same historical story. Their goal is to get the information out there, each in their own way to their own audience. Whereas John's Gospel is considered by many to be the last book of the New Testament written, and that this would have been um, a John the Apostle himself more writing about the, the person of Christ and this encounter with God that all those who knew him um, had. So three Synoptic Gospels and one John's Gospel. Then you have Acts of the Apostles. Then you have the writings of St. Paul. And you have, now we're going to break up Paul here because this is how many scripture scholars do it. You have the seven Proto-Paul. Three Deutero-Paul. Three Tredo-Paul. Seven Proto-Paul, three Deutero-Paul, three Tredo-Paul. Now, look, you ask me, Paul wrote them all, right? But we have more historical evidence, and they're written in different styles that you can definitely, without argument from people who read Scripture, you can say, these seven, hands down, you can't argue, these are written by Paul. These three, I'd say they are, but other people can make him claim that they're not. And then the three Tredo are his writings to Timothy... Is two to letters to Timothy and one to Titus. Uh, Proto is Romans, one and two Corinthians, Galatians, um, Philippians, one Thess, and Philemon. These are the ones that no doubt, no question, Paul wrote himself, or through a scribe, these seven. Then we have Deuteropaul, which is Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians. Then you have Tredopaul, which is Tim, 1 and 2, and Titus. Okay, now these are the Pauline epistles. Now you have what's called the letter to the Hebrews. Um, you could say Paul wrote this one. But actually, even among the church fathers, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. You have church fathers arguing about who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Also, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the best explanation I've heard is that the letter to the Hebrews is a homily that Paul would have given. Because it's written differently than all of his letters, but that there's some, you know, that it would have been um, like a sermon that Paul would have been giving at the time. So maybe not so much a, a written letter, like it doesn't have all of the... Um, the letter characteristics of the other Pauline writings. So you have Hebrews. Then you have uh, the Catholic writings, we would say. The Catholic letters, the Catholic epistles. We'll call them epistles. And that is 1 and 2 Peter, um, James. Um, that is as well. Well, you have um, 1, 2, 3, John, and you have Jude. And then finally, you have the book of Revelation. Okay, great. And so that's what's in your New Testament, right? Um, now, the last thing I'd like to finish with, because we are pretty much out of time. Um, let's double check I got most of what I wanted. Yep. Good. Um, we are pretty much out of time, so I want to finish with one last thing, which is um, a difference between reading the scriptures with faith and reading like the historical critical style. Um, and here's, uh, this is all from Brent Petrie again, which is, he points out, it's about the dating of the New Testament. And this is a, just a good example of the different ways that we read scripture, okay? So the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year... 64 or 67. Someone correct me if you know. I thought it was just 70. Yeah, it was 70. 70. Yeah, I thought it was 70. Let's go 70. Temple of <laughs> Jerusalem is destroyed in 70. Temple of Jerusalem gets destroyed in 70, right? Okay. So here's what happens. Because Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, when you have historical critical study, what they say right off the bat is 
Well, these had to be written after 70 because there's no way that someone predicted the destruction of the temple like that. So they actually say, like, it's just, boom, assumption. These have to be written after 70 so that the destruction of the temple can be appropriately foretold, which means that you have to have, um, as well, you get issues with, like, how do you account for now this late in the game? So we're at least 43 years after Jesus dies. How do you get the fact that these are similar? Well, you may even posit a Q source, which just comes from the word for source, which is like, okay, where did all of this come from? So it's a form of source criticism or redaction criticism. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you got a Q source, you got some other material, um, and it all has to be after 70 because there's no way Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. Um, and that's it, and then it just like, balloons from there, particularly with the Gospels, because, like, now you have probably Mark would have been written around that time, 70, 75. Now you got Matthew and Luke are about are later, so they're in the 80s. So John has to be 90. Now, if John is written in 90, there's no way that that's John. And that's an early dating. They would say 90 to 100. So there's no way that that's really John. And if these are written in 80, that's no way that that's Matthew or even Paul's traveling companion, Luke, like, it yeah. just gets really messed up as you push the date back. Yeah, they try and I to don't have eyewitness. They try to argue it was written by a Johannine community. Who There's a community that wrote John's Gospel and the Book of Revelation and the Let. Now, Paul's letters are pretty, again, proto-Paul you can rely on. Most people say that the first letter to the Thessalonians was the first letter written. And even as we read Acts of the Apostles, we get... Um, we can under we can get like okay well Paul was traveling to these some of these places and he was writing them letters as he was going okay um, so here's the other here's the other side that you can make an argument for um, is that in the year sixty four A D Peter and Paul are killed in Rome under the persecutions of Nero, okay? Now, Acts of the Apostles tells about Peter and Paul and tells that Paul got to Rome, and it kind of ends with the fact that Paul got to Rome and preached there for two years. It doesn't say he died, right? You know what? Other, I have the book Witness to Hope uh, about the life of John Paul II. It ends in the year 2000. It ends with the Jubilee. If you read Witness to Hope alone, you wouldn't think John Paul II died. It doesn't talk about his death. Why doesn't it talk about the death of John Paul II? He hadn't died yet. Why doesn't Acts of the Apostles talk about the death of Peter and Paul? They haven't died yet is the most logical explanation for why a book about the life of Peter and Paul and the other apostles doesn't talk about their death because they hadn't died yet, which means you date the Acts of the Apostles to before 64 AD. Which means Acts of the Apostles is written by the same author as Luke's Gospel. So now you're writing, you're dating Luke's Gospel instead of to 80, you're dating it to around the 60s. Less than 30 years after Jesus died. Now Luke, at the very beginning of his Gospel, references consulting other sources and writings. Okay, What are those most likely? Matthew and Mark. So now you're getting other writings that Luke is saying he's reading before 60. So that has to be less than 60 AD. So we are still within a generation of um, the actual events that they happen. Now, John would have been very young. He would have only been about um, 14 or 16 or so around the time of the events of the Gospels. So if you take that man and you let him um, live another 50 years to be in his mid he's probably even older than that. He died as an older man. Um, then he's able to write significantly later on after these three and the Pauline epistles and the whole thing. John would have written Revelation before he wrote his gospel and the gospel of John would have been the last thing written. So when you go from like reading with faith and actually like trying to say these things are true, then you go from saying that they have to be written after 70 to they have to be completed before 64. Um, and just it's different ways of reading scripture. Um, okay, just a final point. I brought some cool stuff. So 
A lot of the historical stuff that I just really raced through is in this book, The Case for Jesus by Brett Petrie. You should all buy it and read it. Different biblical commentaries give you some cool stuff. So this book is actually very good. It's called Walking with God, and it just goes through the historical um, books of the scriptures to just go through historically what happened from Adam and Eve all the way through the Acts of the Apostles. Like, if you just follow the historical narrative of the Bible, what is the story? That's this book, Walking with God by uh, Tim Gray and Jeff Cavins. Um, next, we have some different commentaries. So we have, you know, you should read, like, the Church Fathers and the way that they read Scripture. So this is St. Augustine's commentary on the Psalms. You also have the Catena Aurea by St. Thomas Aquinas, which is compiling what the fathers say about the Gospels. Um, you know, this is just a good example, if y'all want to take a look at it later, of just a standard biblical commentary that goes through some historical stuff and some grammatical stuff. This is um, the word biblical commentary. These are actually, um, were recommended. Ralph Martin, who teaches at Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit, um, and it's very associated with Franciscan University as the editor for the New Testament series. And then the Brazos Theological Commentary on Scripture, this is Bishop Barron's volume on 2 Samuel. These are getting theologians to go through and comment on Scripture, getting away from some of the historical stuff and just trying to say, like, theologically, why is this uh, important and what's happening? And then finally, you should read the Catechism. Uh, Brant Petrie, I pointed out, this book is super good. Um, Catholic Introduction to the Old Testament. You should read the sections of the Catechism on Scripture, uh, and then the, the Vatican Council document, Dei Verbum, which is on divine revelation and sacred scripture, and see, I mean, the Vatican Council actually has some really good, strong words on scripture that I was just reading earlier today, and it's, um, it's pretty cool. So take a look at some of that stuff. Wow, okay, cool. Do we have questions?